Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Let's turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and we're talking about Jesus' statement this morning that He is the way and the truth and the life. We are continuing in our series on the life and times of Jesus. And Jesus, at this point in our series, is in the upper room, if you remember. He's now sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. This is the very night that he will be arrested. And the very next day is Friday that we call Good Friday. He will be crucified. Now, during this meal, this upper room meal, as he's sharing the Passover with his disciples... Jesus begins to teach his disciples in something that we call the farewell discourse. We call it that because these are Jesus' last words to his disciples before the cross. So there's some really rich stuff in here. It's John chapter 14 through John chapter 17, and it's just incredibly rich as we would imagine Jesus' last words before the cross would be. And so Jesus has gathered together with these disciples And he's now giving them kind of his final words before the cross. And we began this section of scripture last week in John 14, where Jesus in those first three verses is trying to bolster the faith of his disciples. And he's trying to keep them from fear. This week, we're going to pick up with the next three verses. And within these three verses here contains one of the best known and most quoted of all scriptures in all history, but at the same time, it's also one of the most problematic verses for those that have not come to Jesus yet because of his claim to absolute exclusivity and his claim to be the only way. So let's just read through there. We'll begin in verse 1 because it's all connected, and we'll go to verse 6. John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus says to his disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's what we covered last week. This week we pick up in verse 4. And Jesus has just told his disciples that he's going away, and then he says in verse 4, and you know the way where I am going. Verse 5, Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the disciples here, as they've gathered in this upper room, are anxious because Jesus has told them that he's going away. He's just told them that he's going to the Father. And so in an effort to comfort them, Jesus says that I'm going away and I'm going to prepare a way for you to be with me in heaven forever. Of course, we understand that now as the cross. He was going to prepare the way that these disciples would be with him forever. And Jesus in verse 4 says, and you guys know the way. Now, whether they realize it or not in the moment, Jesus has been with them for three years, teaching them the way. 
But then in verse 5, Thomas speaks up, and apparently he's thinking more logistically than spiritually, and he says, but, but we don't know where you're going. So how do we know the way to which Jesus responds well? I am the way, which is what Jesus had been teaching them for the last three years. We've said it over and over. In John chapter 4, as Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, she says, I know that when the Messiah comes, he who is called the Christ, when this one comes, he's going to declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He said, I'm the Christ, plainly and openly. I'm the Messiah. I'm right here right now. I'm the way. In John uh, 640, it says, for this is the will, Jesus said, for this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. He's saying, I'm the way. In John chapter 7, now on the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood and He cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scriptures say, from his innermost being, flow rivers of living water. In John chapter 8, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's saying, I'm the way. In John chapter 10, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. In John chapter 11, as Jesus was speaking to Martha after her brother Lazarus had died and they'd all gathered at the tomb, and Jesus said to her, she'll rise again. Martha says, well, yeah, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Like, I get it, one day he'll rise again. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. For three years, Jesus has been telling them the way the whole time. The disciples just missed it in that moment and what Jesus was speaking of, but, but later they would get it. The disciples would later understand what Jesus was speaking about. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter would stand up before thousands and say in Acts chapter 4 that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which they must be saved. Peter got it. He said there's nobody else. John got it. He said, the word became flesh. That is that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. There, there is no other. He's the only one. Paul would say, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. They got it. And later, the disciples, all of which, would be persecuted and most of them martyred for their testimony of Jesus as the only way. You see, they were ministering in the Roman world of that day. And in the Roman world, there was already this plurality of gods. So just to add God to the other gods in the Roman world wouldn't have been a big deal. I mean, Corinth, Thessalonica, Athens, they all had their own patron gods of their town, but then Caesars also were worshipped. There was a 
a pantheon of gods. That, that wasn't a problem in the Roman world. So if the disciples had just come along and said, you know what, we've got another god, we'd like to throw him in the mix and stir him all together with the rest, they would have been, yeah, great, bring him on in. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the disciples wouldn't do that. They came in and they say, we have the only way through Jesus Christ. He's the only way to heaven and all others lead to eternal destruction. And that's what got them martyred. And it is today still one of the largest hang-ups for those that have not come to Christ yet. The exclusivity that Jesus claims. The world says, I, I, I just can't accept that narrow of a view. And, and if you'll ask anybody from, from any religion or, or almost any, has any knowledge of, of Jesus at all, people that don't even believe in Him, and people that understand that He is at, at the very least a historical figure, if you ask anybody about Jesus, They'll, they'll almost always say that their impression of Jesus is, is we love Jesus, the, the, that selfless care of others. We love that about Jesus. And we love his humility. And we love the things that he did as he went around and he ministered to people. And we love the things that he said, uh, the encouragements that he gave, and the corrections that he gave to those that were out. We love the things of Jesus Except this one. You know, when have you ever heard anybody say a bad thing about Jesus? Now, people will say stuff about the church, and often rightly so, right? Because we do some dumb stuff. But nobody ever says anything bad about Jesus. Except for this one thing. That he claims to be the only way. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And this church remains a huge sticking point for many, many people. And that is because we want options, don't we? Right? We want options. We, we don't go to a restaurant where there's one thing on the menu. We want options. When you, when you get TV service, you get 850 channels, not just one. Why? Because we want options. We want to have it our way, don't we? We don't want anybody to tell us what we are to do, even if it's God. We need to recognize this for what it truly is because there is a sinful rebellious nature within us that came at the fall of humanity. I mean, that's what original sin was, was it not? Adam and Eve saying, I know what God said, but we're still going to do it our way. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, 6, says that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to, notice what it says, his own way. In rejection to God's way, we've turned to our own way. Beautiful thing is, because God is love, because He is merciful, He made a way, right? I mean, it is then incredibly arrogant, is it not, 
for humanity to demand more options of God? I mean, we're the ones that are lost in the first place. We're the ones that are lost in our sin. We're the ones that are separated from God by our own rebellion. We're the ones that are facing death and destruction without any way to help ourselves when God out of sheer love stepped in and made a way. It says in Romans 5a, God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Colossians 1.13, it says, for he rescued us. Church, this was a rescue mission. We were lost. We were in big time trouble. We had no way to get back on our own. It was a rescue mission. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sin. It was an act of sheer mercy because we had no way to save ourselves. So what arrogance then for us to demand options from a God who gave his absolute best to us. It's kind of akin to to being lost at sea, right? You're 400 miles out offshore in a lifeboat and you reject rescue because the rescuer showed up in a red boat, but you like blue boats better. And you demand from them, I want more options for this rescue. We have to remember that God didn't have to make a way. Made a way because He is love. Now, with all that said, the problem that we have in our day, in our age, in our time, in our world, is that things have gotten so confused and muddled with so many different competing religious systems and paths to enlightenment and so-called ways. There's so many others that are claiming to be the way that the real way, the only way, it's kind of hard to see through the smoke screen of the counterfeits, right? There's so many. There's 380 million Buddhists, 900 million Hindus, 1.3 billion Muslims, and billions of other people that are following smaller religions or cults or offshoots or, or just making up God on their own the way they think that He is. And so then, sympathetically, we have to understand that for the earnest seeker today, the question is what? How can I know God? How can I know what is really real? How can I be sure that with all of these ways, claiming to be the way, that I have the right way? Jesus answers that question in the next thing that he says when he says, I am the only way, because I am the truth. That's quite important, isn't it? Which one is true? Jesus says, I am the way because I am the truth and because he is life. And so here Jesus claims to be the truth. And truth by very nature is exclusive, is it not? Sometimes you'll hear somebody say something to the effect of, well, that's your truth, but not my truth, right? Jesus is true for you, but he's not true for me. That's an illogical statement because if something's true, it's true universally, is it not? Two plus two is four everywhere in the world in every culture, is it not? 
on Wednesdays and on Tuesdays, two plus two is always four. It's never three, it's never five. And so either Jesus is the only unique Savior of the world, as the Bible says He is, or He's not. We can't have it both ways. It's what we call the the law of non-contradiction. And it means that Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and Christianity cannot all be true for their respective followers at the same time. All of these cannot be true because they all make exclusive truth claims. Let me explain what I mean. Buddhism, for example, says that there is no God and there's only a path to enlightenment, while Christianity says there is for sure a God. Those both can't be true. Islam says that Jesus did not die on the cross. There was a replacement for him. It was not Christ on the cross. And you must earn your way to paradise, where Christianity says Jesus absolutely died on the cross and we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. Both of those two cannot be true. So then the question for the confused seeker would be, how can I know truth? And the answer is, through the evidence. Through the evidence. Meaning this, that God didn't just leave us to try to randomly guess which way is right. That wouldn't be a God of love, would it? To just say, okay, you guys just draw a name out of a hat and I hope you get the right one. Not how it played out. God gave us all of the evidence that anyone should need to believe and be confident in Him as the way and as the truth. The issue is, will humanity look at the evidence? Far too often, people deal with truth the way Pontius Pilate did. He acted as though he wanted truth, but was unwilling to look at the evidence through Christ. In John chapter 18, it says, Therefore Pontius Pilate said to Jesus, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I come into the world. Notice, to testify of truth. And then look at what Jesus says. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. What is Pontius Pilate doing right now? Standing there with an opportunity to hear the truth from Jesus. And it says that Pontius said to him, what is truth? And then when he said this, he went out again. What happened right there? Pontius Pilate asked the most important question to the very one that had the answer and didn't bother waiting to hear the answer. Now, we don't have time to go through every evidence for Christ's truth and the validity of the Bible. But I do want to look at a few of them this morning so that you have a feeling for and an understanding of what I'm talking about when I say that God did not leave us without evidence. And I highly recommend, church, that you study these things. I'll recommend a book to you right now. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. Frank Turek and Norman Geisler... I do not have enough faith to be an atheist. One of my favorite books on the subject, and it will give you more information than I'm going to give you this morning. But I want to give you a sense, because it's not enough to just show up and say, there's evidence, right? 
not helpful to anybody. So number one, I like to start with, is manuscript evidence. When Jesus is praying for his disciples in John chapter 17, he says this. He says, sanctify them in truth. And then look what he says. Your word is truth. Now, manuscript evidence shows that God has preserved his word, the word of truth, intact for centuries. It doesn't do any good for Jesus to say, to sanctify them in truth, your word is truth, if that truth has been changed somewhere along the way. That's the argument of many skeptics, that the Bible can't be trusted because it has been changed or it has been manipulated over thousands of years in many translations. The argument is it may have started out as truth, but it is not reliable now. You remember back a few years, that was the premise of the Da Vinci Code, that there were these church councils, and in these councils, they changed the Word of God to manipulate people. That's not accurate. Manuscript evidence shows that the Word of God has not been changed or tampered with over time. We have over 42,000, way more than any other writing in ancient world, we have over 42,000 whole and partial manuscripts that date back to the first and second century. What that means for you then is if you can read Greek, you can go to the house of the book in Jerusalem or one of these other places where these manuscripts are held and you can hold your Bible in one hand and read the manuscript in the other and see that exactly what your Bible says says exactly what the manuscript says. I've seen these manuscripts. God has preserved his word perfect as we would imagine God. And we can have the utmost confidence that what we read and study now are the same very truths that Jesus and the apostles preached then. The second evidence I wanted to share with you, and and I'm just giving you examples. There's way more to manuscript evidence than just that, but I'm just kind of giving you some examples, hopefully to kind of whet your appetite to want to study these things. Number two is this the archaeological evidence. Biblical archaeology is a vast subject. And the reason that it's so vast is because there's no one single archaeological find that proves the validity of Bible or the truth of Christ, but rather there are thousands upon thousands, if not millions of archaeological finds that confirm the things of the Bible. You see what I'm saying? So, so it's not one thing. It's not as if an archaeologist, an archaeologist dug up one thing and he goes, well, here's the proof. It's a vast mound of thousands and fa- thousands of archaeological evidence and archaeological finds that reveal that what the Bible says about people and nations and places and wars and conquering and distances and events are accurate. One of the things that you'll notice if you've ever read any other religious books, the Bible is absolutely unique in the fact that it is incredibly detailed. It's incredibly detailed. As you read through, look at the details, the distances, the, the, the people, the, the names, the time periods, everything is incredibly detailed. It tells you how deep the water was off of certain islands in some places in the Bible. I mean, it's incredibly detailed. And over and over and over again, archaeology 
proves those details to be accurate. You can look at all of it for yourself, but I'll give you some examples. One would be like um, the Pontius Pilate stone. For years, critics of the Bible said, well, you know, Pontius Pilate is a key figure in the crucifixion of Jesus, and we have no record of his existence whatsoever. It wasn't that there wasn't any record of Pontius Pilate, it's just that the record hadn't been dug up yet. And some years back, in Caesarea Maritima, they were digging and they found um, a stone pillar as they would set up these stone pillars. Kind of like road signs, but they were monument pillars. And it had Pontius Pilate's name on it, the time period in which he governed, and who he governed under, and all of it was absolutely historically accurate. When you go to Israel, and we do this on periodically take trips to Israel. I've been going there for 10 years now. We literally go there to look at all the places that the Bible happened, right? And the fun thing is that archaeologists constantly are finding new things that confirm the validity of the Bible. Just since I've been going to Israel, they found the Pool of Salom, huge biblical find in just the last like five, maybe seven years. Just in my last two trips, we've been able, they've just uncovered the synagogue at Magdala. It's the only first century synagogue in all of the Galilee that's still intact that Jesus would have spoke at. First century synagogue, just found within, what, the last maybe three or four years. Archaeologists just found where the tabernacle at Shiloh was. Every time we go, it's so awesome, we get to see new things that confirm all of those details of the Bible. Archaeology is constantly discovering how true the Bible is. The Bible is just true. Archaeology is just discovering. Archaeology is just revealing how true the Bible is. And here's another very, very important fact. There has never been a single, not one single archaeological find that has ever refuted a single detail in the Bible, while there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands that confirm. Number three, quickly, is prophecy. And this is a big one. What makes prophecy so special is that prophecy is the way that God himself said that he would prove that he is true and that his word is true. You'll see some scriptures come up on the screen. Numbers 23 Isaiah 21, uh, 41, 42, 44, 46, 48, among others. There's others in these. I just threw these up there. And what God is doing in these different scriptures is he's talking to the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel in all of these scriptures is turning away to idols. And here's what God says to those that are turning to idols. He goes, here's how you're going to know that I'm the true God. You guys are turning to false gods, but I want to give you proof I want to give you evidence that I'm the true God. So here's how you're going to know. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen ahead of time. And then I'm going to bring it to pass. That's what we call prophecy, right? Predicting future events and then bringing it to pass. I'm going to tell you what we're going to do ahead of time. And then I'm going to bring it to pass. And you will know that I am God because nobody but God can do that. So God gives prophecy as a proof that he is true. And a world full of false gods are not. Jesus did the same thing with his disciples. In John chapter 13, verse 19, he said, From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, 
so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus told his disciples all these things of his death, of his resurrection, of his ascension. Who would betray him? That Peter would deny him. The the creation of his church in the day of Pentecost. All of these things were told by Jesus ahead of time so that when the disciples saw them come to pass, they, even in their darkest time, and, and, and when they were going through it and being persecuted, they'd go, yeah, but he's God. Because nobody else can predict the future and then bring it to pass. Church, over one-third of the Bible that you hold in your hand is predictive prophecy. And over half of that has been fulfilled perfectly. What that then totals is thousands and thousands of prophecies that God gave and then fulfilled to prove that He alone is God and He alone is the truth. And there are over 320 of these prophecies fulfilled perfectly in the coming of Christ. So God said, this is what I'm going to do ahead of time. This is how you're going to recognize the Messiah when He comes, when the Christ comes. This is how you're going to recognize Him. I'll give you 320 plus prophecies so that you'll be able to see Him perfectly. And then He sent Him into the world for all who are willing to look at the evidence. Church, This makes the Bible absolutely unique. There's no other religious writing that has any other prophetic value. Zero. The Quran, the Hindu Vedas, the teachings of Buddha, the the Book of Mormon, none of which have a single fulfilled prophecy within them. The Bible has thousands. Church, that should give you great confidence that the Bible that you hold in your hand and the Jesus that it testifies of are truly the truth. Finally, as we wrap this up, Jesus says that He is the way because He is the life. He is the way because He is the life. That is that Jesus has proven that He is the only way because He's the only one to defeat death. The proof of it is in the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the only person in all of human history that says, I'm going to be put to death, I'm going to be in the grave for three days, and then I'll see you on Sunday, and then pull it off. Now we'll obviously be talking more about the resurrection as we go further into our series, but I just want to say this for now. The apostles claim to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and every single one of them were willing to die for that fact. Listen, if the whole thing was a hoax, they wouldn't have died for it because Peter had already denied Jesus out of fear. But later, if if church history is correct, he was crucified upside down for preaching that Jesus is is the resurrected Savior. He said this on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witness. This is a man that just denied Jesus. But now having seen the resurrected Jesus, could not deny him anymore. James, the half-brother of Jesus, only became a believer after seeing the resurrected Jesus. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, to assure them of the truth of the resurrection and to give them proof in case they doubted what Paul was saying, said this. He said, For I delivered to you 
as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then notice, and He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to what? More more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. That means they had died. Then He appeared to James, to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. What is Paul telling these guys in Corinth? He's saying, if you don't believe me about the risen Jesus, all you have to do is go to Jerusalem because there's over 500 people there that will testify to the risen Lord right there. And of course, time doesn't allow, but there's way, 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 way more evidence that we just won't get to today. But I want to leave it with this. God has not left us without overwhelming evidence that He is the truth, that His Word is the truth, that Jesus is the only unique Savior of the world, and that He defeated death and now offers eternal life to all that will come to Him. I'll tell you this, the more that I study this book, the more that I study the Bible, the more I understand how we got it, the, the more... I see how God has preserved it and the more I see how it fits perfectly together and how it alone answers every question of life and how every page points to the perfect plan of redemption in Jesus Christ, there becomes no question that this is the truth of God. 66 books and what you hold in your hand. Over 40 different penmen, penned over 1,600 years, in three different languages, on three different continents, yet without one single contradiction. Who can do that? God and God alone. All of that that tells one perfect story of God's love and redemption through Jesus Christ. Only God can pull that off. If we, in this room, sat down right now and tried to write a document, it'd have 1,600 contradictions within it. 66 books, 40 different writers, 1,600 years, three different languages, three different continents, and not a single contradiction tells one perfect story. Jesus is the only way because He is the truth and because He is life. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that you didn't just have us try and figure it out on our own. Yet you left us with mounds of evidence that you are the truth, that you are the life. Lord, we thank you for the prophecies that so clearly point to the fact that you alone are God. We thank you for the resurrection. It shows us that you alone have defeated death. Lord, we, we're in awe of you. We humble ourselves before these truths. And so we then remind ourselves 
since you are truly God, and this is truly your word, it was given to transform our lives. Lord, may we bring our lives under the authority of your word and live it out. Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon this church? You draw people to yourself. Beautiful truth. Would you take your church, Lord? Would they go out bold to share these truths? Jesus, as we worship you now, we thank you. That while you didn't have to make a way, you did. 